Jessica, you were saying before that you particularly enjoyed playing Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd, mm. who's very much, I, I suppose we'd have to call her a, a full-blooded, Ooh. well, you've got to say she's a villainess, haven't you? Yes. But she's rounded. And so Shirley Porter, we can't say that. We've got to see her in 360 degrees, haven't we? Yes, she is, well, she is the protagonist mm. of Shirley Mander, but we might also, the, the favoured phrase now is, is anti-hero. She's an anti-heroine. And I suppose, you know, the other way to look at her is that she's a maverick. She's somebody who really had very little experience of politics, um, but decided that she could take her energy and her talent um, for getting the job done into the political sphere. Um, you know, in the 80s, when people like, well, Mag Margaret Thatcher was prime minister and Edwina Curry was there centre stage and women were, they were wearing the shoulder pads and they were rolling their sleeves up and having a look at things objectively. Oh, for goodness sake, just get on with it. <laughs> and we could also use the word naive, but, you know, with the word naive, can we also say that it, is it willful naivety to sort of go in and take charge and not actually think about the possible consequences and repercussions of decisions. Um, so there'll be a lot of questions, but I think, you know, there is nobody, uh, we can use, use the metaphor of, of throwing stones at glass windows, you know, nobody in politics is, is innocent. I think once a, a friend of mine actually said, I think he was quoting Billy Connolly, that anybody who wants to go into politics should be shot <laughs> because you know it's it it's it smacks of mm -hmm. of arrogance and um power hunger mm -hmm. and all these things whether you are you know left right in the center or whatever it seems to me that once you decide that you're going to be the person that tells other people what to do and speaks for the masses you're not going to come out of that um clean yes. no not everyone will know. It's a while back now, mm. so not everybody's going to know. I mean, it's almost history now, isn't it, really? Yes. So, although she is still alive. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, should we just very briefly tell, give some background on her and on the story of Shirley Mander and, and this wonderful word? It's a wonderful portmanteau word, yes. that, isn't it? So, Shirley Porter, she rose to fame in the 80s. She was the leader for Westminster Council. So... She wasn't Maggie Thatcher, but I think she might have dreamed of, of, of rising. So Dame Shirley Porter, um, well, she's not Dame anymore, but Lady Shirley Porter came to fame in the 80s as leader of Westminster Council. And prior to that, she had she wasn't known for anything particularly apart from being the um, heiress to the Tesco empire. She's the daughter of... Jack Cohen, who founded Tesco, and her husband, Leslie, was the chairman. He was made a, a peer, hence that's why she was Lady Shirley Porter. And according to the play, uh, she was, if you like, uh, like a bored aristocrat, really. She was, she brought up her children. She'd had the children very young. Um, she was in her late 30s, and she was spending her time, I suppose, going to charity functions and, and uh, improving her golf handicap. Um, and she was a woman, I think, with, uh, should we call them daddy issues? I think that she 
looked up to her father, but she also probably felt in her father's shadow and she wanted to do something that would make her be remembered and stand out. And that combination is the dangerous kind of fuel for the things that happened because once she got into power, to cut a long story short, and with, there aren't any plot spoilers because it's history now, but, you know, the whole um, saga of, of her era is a story of corrupt local politics and, if you like, social cleansing of people being moved out of properties in order um, for the right kind of people to, to be occupying those places and, and voting in the way that one wanted. And it's absolutely, to using the, you know, the phrase, it's not cricket, but however crooked politicians may have been, the thing that you don't do is manipulate um, the demographic in order to get the results that you want. And she will, you know, shout to the cows come home that she was not guilty of gerrymandering, which was what she was accused of. But you really, you look at the way things played out and you uh, and people have been interviewed since the event. Uh, yes, she was she was guilty of, of not playing by the rules. Uh, and she she did it because she wants she was a, f a fervent Tory and she wanted to be seen, I suppose, as somebody rescuing the Tory vote. Um, and she would probably argue if people were to turn around and say, well, you know, uh, you, you weren't considering, um, you know, democracy and and all people. But she had this notion of, you know, I, I came from essentially a working class background and my father rolled his sleeves up and, you know, got out there and did the job and the people that, you know, um, the people that are living off the, the fruit of people that work hard are just sort of lazy ne'er-do-wells and it's that kind of Victorian laissez-faire mentality which is which is horrible you know you could, nobody knows what people's stories are you can't make sweeping judgments like that and people you know now we're living with the the shadow of Grenfell Tower a year later which is relevant to why the play is being put on actually at this time and in the venue it is to you know which just proves that you can't be high-handed about things and you can't just say, oh, well, I need to get my numbers right and, and we'll just take shortcuts because people are not numbers, they're human beings. And, um, you know, and, and it's awful that people can lose their lives because of people's d wanting to have power and wanting things to go a political way. It, it, it's interesting, it's got a lot of contemporary resonance really hasn't it and fir first of all it, you only have to wander around perhaps the, the city or um the the south bank and you look at these flats going up and there's there's nowhere for ordinary people and i don't yes. think there can be enough social housing at all and so maybe she, she, it's a precedent that she set i'm not sure but for sure it's going on and it's worse than that mm. in that we know that the Russian oligarchs are you know, buying yes. up these places. And then there's often they're empty. So, yes. you know, she, she's part of a trend, sadly. And so it is, it's relevant. Yes, it's, it is relevant. But also it's interesting now that, um, you know, uh, she, she has, if you like, been erased from mm. conservative history, <laughs> that she always felt like, you know, that she was the outsider and, and she was going to show people and she wanted to kind of be celebrated. Well, um, 
the Conservative Party are, are kind of pretending. She's an embarrassment. It's mm -hmm. like, but actually, you know, they're all guilty. The people that were with her making the decisions are just as guilty. So, uh, so it's going to be interesting. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm I, I'm not. Uh, what's the word? I I I am an actress. I am the voice piece. I haven't written the piece. I'm here to tell the story, and I'm here to embody Shirley. So I'm not really about making my own personal judgments about her. And I think that that's, a, a, you know, that's one can go wrong as an actor. You, you're presenting a caricature rather than investing a real personality into somebody if you, you play it like that. Um, and which is interesting because, you know, my background as far as political satire goes is that I, I used to do voices on Spitting Image mm. back in the 80s. Shirley Porter was not one of the characters that we did. <laughs> would have been funny if it yes, was, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. But I did do Edwina Curry, <laughs> so, and oh, who would also make a, a very interesting character. Give us a bit of Edwina. <laughs> well, Edwina is um, just very forthright with a slight, you know, hint of Midlands there, but not very much. And she would definitely have an answer for any challenge that you'd give her. <laughs> I was just thinking this even more contemporary resonant. You know you said people need to sort of, I think, step up to the plate and fess up if they've done mm. something wrong. As far as, like, I mean, we've got, we're in the middle of this whole Windrush scandal at the yes. moment, which is not dissimilar. I mean, that mm -hmm. is something, and it just seems to keep happening. You know, the obviously, the, um, you know, the Gren Grenfell Tower is one of the most awful examples. I mean, you know, you cannot encompass it. Yeah. But... You, you know, all of these things seem to me to be linked. Yes. And, and, you know, nobody is blameless in, I mean, in this situation. No, nobody is blameless. And I think what we also have to understand is that in uh, at a time when we've got world leaders who just are out for themselves, they're individualistic, they pretend to be for the people, but no, they just they want to have status. And actually... Everybody wants to have status. You know, social media, it's all about me and my brand. And what is my brand? Standing, looking at myself on a phone and, you know, what is what is that about? But I think we're in the age of, yes, we can agree with the, the notion that all human beings deserve liberty and happiness, but don't they also need to be responsible for each other? And that's the missing thing. And that's what really, I suppose, if, if we're looking for the moral of the story with Shirley Mander and other stories that are going on today is that, no, we're, we're not an island. And uh, everything has got repercussions, whether you're selling arms to a country that's that going to turn them against you or turn them against their... You know, it, it, you, you, don't, you don't do things without it having a knock-on effect. Um, and hopefully, yeah, it will make people kind of sit up and they, they will have a laugh at the play, but it goes to very dark places as well. Tell me a bit more about the actual events of the play. I mean, okay. if, if you really to, how what's its take on it yeah. and on, on the events, and what, what, what do we see? I mean, the, the moment in time, I don't know if it's a moment or whether it's years, but tell me. Okay, so um, it's not a specific moment in time, but you get the feeling that we are, we're, we're in the middle of this crisis where um, Shirley Porter and her fellow MPs are going to be outed for gerrymandering, for um, fixing housing, i.e. selling off council houses that should be for people that um, 
you know, in, in a social class that need them, can't afford the properties, they're being forced out uh, in order for middle class professionals who would potentially vote Conservative to be moved in. Because in a sort of unprophesied turn of events, Westminster, which has always been traditionally right uh, of, of centre, it's had a, a Labour victory at that time. So this is unconscionable. This is, you know, Shirley Porter's going to come in on horseback and rescue it. <laughs> from, in, from, this is how she sees things. Um, but she doesn't see that she what she's doing is is immoral and illegal. So that's where we are with it. Um, and then the the play itself kind of we it centres around her and what's driven her to want to take on this role. But also it's the the people around her and the attitudes towards her. And you know she thinks she's the hero of her own story, but you know there are lots of different colours of story going on. So it's a very very interesting from the political intrigue, but also human interest. I mean, I, I love that series, House of Cards. Um, it's just, you kind of almost watch it through your fingers because you go, I can't believe he's going to do if she's going to do that, but, and people do. Uh, and then this is a real life House of Cards situation. It's kind of, you can't quite believe it. I wasn't particularly interested. I mentioned uh, doing Spitting Image, but my life in the 80s was all kind of, me, me being being in showbiz and living in a lovely bubble of musicals and things and uh, you know and and the world was going on the world was spinning and there were all these things happening and and here we are and you don't I, I don't think people then thought that there would be the consequences of those decisions coming back in such a horrible way as they have done now um, we spoke about Grenfell Tower. The, the theatre where we're going to be doing the play is literally five minutes away from Grenfell Tower. You can actually see it when you sort of walk around the, the block. Um, and it's going to be staged at a time which is kind of around the anniversary. So it's kind of very, very relevant subject. Um, and, and it also says something actually about the uh, rationale of... of you know, the artistic director's vision for the playground, which is he wants to do plays that are going to draw a wide audience, but also will be of interest and will be connected to the community around. Mm. So it would be interesting to see how, how it's received. Let's talk, so let, let's name check some of these yes. people. So who is the, 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 um, the artistic director? Okay, the artistic director, one of the artistic directors of the playground is Anthony Biggs. Um, and the owner and the artistic director with him is Peter Tate. Uh, and Peter Tate it was who actually found this uh, disused bus depot um, it, you know, just off Latimer Road about 10 years ago. And he and his wife, Naomi, who's a, she's a, a former prima ballerina, they, they bought the property. And it's just, I can't describe it. You have to go and see it. It's just a wonderful... Um, just anomaly in the middle of you know West London. This it's a fringe theatre, but it's not it's not a black box with no personality. It's just it's a beautiful jewel of a place, and I I think it's great that they have seen that a, you know a theatre is not just a space for putting on the pieces, but it's um, it is a space for people to go and they they might have coffee and they might go there and see one thing but it's a place that they want to convene at 
Uh, he's, uh, he's actually directing the play, Anthony yes, Biggs. Yes, Anthony's <laughs> directing the play. And who else is in it with you? Because um, you've got another actor I'm very, very keen on in it. So um, I, yes, um, I was very excited to hear that Jack Claff is going to be part of the cast. It's an ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. And we've also got James Horn. We've got Omar Baroud and Amanda Waggett and George Potts, who will be playing a number of... Uh, members of the Westminster Council and and other people besides. Uh, And most importantly, the playwright is Gregory Evans, who wrote Shirley Mander. Originally, Shirley Mander was broadcast on Radio 4 in 2009, a one-off play. It starred Tracy Ann Oberman as Shirley, and it was written by Gregory Evans, um, but it was heavily based on a biography which was out at that time by Andrew Hoskin, who's a, a very well-known BBC reporter. His uh, biography of Shirley Porter, Nothing Like a Dame. Which is such a great title. Yes, <laughs> yes, Nothing Like a Dame. Well, what's that saying about Shirley? So the facts of Shirley's life make up a lot of the play. So we're, we're going to know a lot about her backstory as well as the events of, of the 80s scandal. I am really excited about playing her I mean I was brought up in North Finchley and I I suspect that I'm I'm not sure whether she lived I know she lived in the Finchley area but I think Shirley Porter is probably typical of a certain kind of middle-class woman aspirational woman from Finchley (laughs) who would have her ideas of you know I mean like the whole thing about wanting to clean up London (laughs) you know, clean up London and clean up a few of the people in the meantime, you know, it just is, it's kind of North London, Marie Antoinette. <laughs> <laughs> so but did, she didn't get on with Mar- Margaret Thatcher, though, did she? Was that right, or did she? Um, no, I don't, I, I will have to do my research because I'm in the middle of reading the biography, actually, mm. but um, no, I think Margaret Thatcher would re- be very much looking down her nose at Shirley's mm. pretensions of <laughs> being being a successor or, um, you know, even a, a consort to her, you know. It's, only, it's like being the only gay in the village, I think, women at that, that time. Yes, they were proud to be women breaking through, but it's like there's only room for one of us. Mm. <laughs> a shame, so no sisterhood then. <laughs> no, no. no. We, we haven't really touched on the important... I mean, why we're here in a way is that she obviously... Well, she is Jewish. Mm. And this, again, that gives it a contemporary relevance because we are in the middle of this anti-Semitism storm, yeah. which is very much um, there are the accusations against the Labour Party and particularly Jeremy Corbyn, you know, of anti-Semitism or not cleaning up anti-Semitism or mm-hmm. understanding what it is, are relevant, I think, to this because, you know, you could, I, you could say that maybe she came in for even more stick because she was Jewish, I don't know, or she now lives in Israel. I've seen at least one article that sort of, if I think it was in the Guardian that sort of takes it, you know, you sort of lives in a luxury flat in Israel, like you know, yeah. as if that was sort of a vaguely a sin. So yeah. you know, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Yes. I mean, we, we, you know, I sometimes wonder whether you know Jews are meant to be, you know, sort of above. We have to be like Caesar's wife, don't we? Particularly perfect <laughs> and above suspicion, <laughs> which uh, nobody is. You know, we're all we've all we're all grey. Well, I saw. Um, is it Jonathan Friedlander? That is, is that Friedland. Friedland? Yes, mm. on Question Time the other week, and he was talking about the Labour Party anti-Semitism and so on, and he said that the reason why it, it's kind of rife 
in the on the extreme left is because sometimes as not all Jewish people but certain Jewish people are seen to be you know having wealth that's confined to them and their circle and and connections and so on and they're seen as so if, if the left is there to be the iconoclasts of, of the powerful people those kind of people will be you know put into that bracket and certainly Shirley Porter would you know forget what her you know her religion and ethnicity but for being somebody who's born into wealth and because of that wealth has got access to a lot of connections and a lot of people who could, because, you know, we can't deny money will buy you a lot of things that other people were. So there is that, but she, you know, she was, she would play the card of, oh, you're being anti-Semitic in, for, to defend herself. And that's not fair on other Jewish people, is it? You know, for, because she, you know, people talk about Jewish people as if it's just one you know, kind of stereotype for every, and it, it, it isn't, you know, Jewish people are all colours of politics, of, of genre, of tastes, and so, so it, it is, it is ridiculous, and it is racist to kind of lump somebody, you know, you're, you are, you are this, I'm going to label you this, because of your religion, and where you've come from, but I do, think that yeah she was I mean when she wanted to become the chairwoman of Tesco one that was that was a definite no was oh is it is it because I'm a woman oh is it because I'm Jewish you know so it's very easy to to play it the the other way yeah the racist sexist card yeah absolutely yeah Mm, absolutely Mm. Mm. and does it come up in the play you know the that she's Jewish is it relevant at any point yes it does because you know we we get the gist of her the the worship of her father and her father's background as a you know from Hackney Barrow boy to supermarket mogul you know which is an incredible rise and and you know it touches on her being the little girl sitting at Friday night dinner and hearing the stories and and wanting to participate and I think if we it it strikes me that if there is any tragedy for Shirley Porter is that there's somebody who's you know a smart energetic woman with the wherewithal you know with the material ability to change things but sort of not not being in touch with real life you know like she worships her father that much is obvious from the play but she hasn't been there on the ground level working her way up from nothing. She's been born into this life of privilege. And and I think that it would be very interesting, you know, if they were to do a a television documentary and and lure her back from her luxury life, you know, put her in a kind of like secret millionaire situation for her to actually go and spend some time with the people living near Grenfell Tower who are the same as her, grandparents were years ago you know immigrants struggling to just be inventive and create a life for themselves and then walk in those shoes and then make your decisions about who's right to live in a certain place and who's not Mm -hmm. because that's that's what all these things come down to is that people that behave in a (laughs) let's put it a sociopathic manner they just don't have they don't have the empathy Mm -hmm. either because 
they just don't have it. You know, it's just kind of a, a psychological defect or because they have not been exposed to... They've just had a life where they've been protected from any connection with, you know, the other the other side of, of reality and other people walking in other people's shoes. And that's what you've got for, from the play and from, from your research. But you have mm. got... I mean, you've got to get inside her. Yeah. You've, you've got to empathise. Yes. Mm. And I... You know, I do. <laughs> I do empathise because, like Shirley, I'm a woman, you know, now. I'm past my middle age, but I am not lacking in any energy or, or ambition to do the things that I love. So, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm playing a leading part in a, a play, which is wonderful. And I have my other things that keep me going in my life. I have my, um, you know, I've got my family life. And I have my my artistic life as well because I. We're going to talk about that, yes. aren't we? <laughs> yeah, but I, I I think I I am if you like I'm kept out of mischief. I'm kept mm. out of uh, being a salamander <laughs> or a shirleymander because I've I personally have had never had any idea uh, um, any desire to you know even enter the politics of the school playground it's ne not been of interest for me to be on a committee and be looking at how things should be run and 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 be wanting to have wear the badge it's like wanting to be head girl or prefect when you're at school it is it's kind of as as shallow as that but there are plenty of people for whom that gives them a cause and a drive um and it it, it doesn't end prettily when it's on a very high level mm. and you're, you're playing with people's lives they're not pawns on a chessboard they are people yeah. and for all the things that we've said we haven't it is a comedy isn't it yes, i mean the point we haven't exactly yeah. said i think it's very funny i think i remember on the radio on yes. radio four as far as i can remember it's it's a dark comedy but yeah. a very very biting satire yes it is oh yeah, so to give some um you know backstory on the play itself it was it was first broadcast as a radio play on radio 4 in 2008 i think and tracy ann oberman who's a friend of mine and she's a fantastic actress uh she was playing shirley porter um and and yet but the thing is i mean on paper, you you look at this role, and as an actress, you're thinking to yourself, "Oh my goodness, this is fantastic!" The sort of hyacinth bouquet meets Betty Davis. <laughs> you know, as as a, an actress, you want to be playing. Maybe when you're younger, you want to play the pretty young person who wins the, you know, the the the, the prince. But actually, when you're older, you want to. You're kind of like Shirley Porter. You want to be in the middle of the in the eye of the storm where it's all happening. Um, and she certainly is in the eye of the storm and she's making the storms and she's she is the queen in this piece. There's no doubt about it. Sounds like she might be like Lady M in the Scottish play. Yes. <laughs> that sort of queen. Yeah, except that she's, you know, not standing behind anyone else's throne. It's all about her yes, standing behind. Of course, there. it's her yes. throne, yes. yes. Well, there, there must be a husband yes. in the story. Oh, yes, there is a husband. A consort. A consort, <laughs> and it's hilarious. That part for me really made me laugh because mm. as you can imagine and her husband at the beginning of the story sadly has uh you know he's lost a lot of his memory and she's she's pretty cruel mm. <laughs> yeah um and Im impatient and yes i mean i i would imagine that you know it, it just strikes me that she's a woman she 
puts across the story that I'm, you know, this, uh, I'm a, a dutiful wife and I've brought up my kids and I've done all the right things and, and a good daughter. But, but she's, but there's a part of her that's still hungry and a part of her that's not satisfied. And that's what's bringing her into the court of Westminster. Although that is perfectly valid as yeah, an ambition. isn't it? Mm. Isn't it? It is valid. Uh, and I think um, it's just... I, I feel very disappointed when a Shirley Porter comes on the scene who's got, you know, kind of ticks so many boxes. That's all. As I was saying, it's, per, it's fair dues that if, you, if you've done your bringing up of children and you've still got all that energy and life left in yeah. you, that, that it, this should be your time. Yes, it should be your time. And, you know, we're, we're fortunate now that we are living in a time where suddenly... <laughs> people are waking up to the fact that oh gosh women are really clever and capable and they can do all these things and oh look we've discovered another female physicist or astronaut or whatever and I, I kind of get angry about it because I think you know the the clever women have been there doing things in in a wonderful way but yeah but always in the shadows because because it seems to me that every time a powerful woman does come to the fore, be it Shirley Porter or Hillary Clinton, and they do something wrong. It's like, oh well, you know, there you go. <laughs> it's it's like we we're, we're allowed three strikes or something, and I just think it's ridiculous. I think we need to get out of this kind of uh, gender gender based, um, you know, cognition of of people's abilities. I mean, just why can't we just be human beings and do things well or not do things well? But there you go, little bit, little bit of progress. Um, yeah. So I sort of, yeah, I wonder whether whether Shirley Shirley might have been perhaps, you know, it, it's almost like a spoilt child. You know, now people would perhaps have have spoken up and said, "You can't do this. You really can't." And we have to. But she was people gave her free reign to do things and then moaned about it afterwards because they were caught. But actually, you wonder, would they have been quite happy if, if it had all kind of worked out and nobody had their knuckles wrapped over it, you know? Oh, <laughs> so yes. I, I'm sure it's the, the getting caught out that yes. is the big sin, isn't mm. it? Yes, that's yeah. what you... Yeah, until you, you're caught out. Now, you you have so many strings to your bow I don't know where to begin really because but let's just a little taster mm. that we hope we're going to meet again soon yep. because there's another whole side to your career and your brilliant abilities you're not just a brilliant singer and a brilliant actor you're you are the most fun I, I, I what do you like to call it? a graphic artist not a cartoon or cartoon um, what do you like to call it you've written all these books and they're wonderful and I've got them in front of me so we're just going to just a tiny tantalizing little taster <laughs> for the future that we're going to get together again because yes. there's a new one coming out so just just yes, so I'm tell well me a little bit i mean i am looking at these sunny books and i i can't get enough of them i mean you draw quite beautifully and you do your subjects are often to do with with showbiz yes so, so i embarked on a hobby of drawing um about mm, that seven years ago and i I had done A-level art, you know, back in the day. It was one of my top subjects. And I never, ever picked up a pencil. After I got into acting and things took off, um, the the drawing hobby for me, it just went by the wayside. And actually, you know, when I think back to the A-level, that, that was my top marker of my three subjects. But I never considered 
art as a profession because it was like, you know, acting is hard enough as a profession. I was thinking, well, what do you do with art? You know, do you, perhaps you could become a fashion designer, but I mean, I, I, art for me was what I saw in the National Gallery, you know, sort of a giant oil painting. And actually, for me, narrative art was always more attractive than conceptual. I always sort of saw things kind of literally. If I was reading a book, for instance, I would run it like a movie in my head and I could see people playing the part. So it was almost as if at that time there was a synthesis going on with um, acting, um, dramatising and visualising. But I never really, you know, all these things were, there wasn't an outlet for it. So fast forward to all these years later and, um, and you know, my acting career has been going for a long time and I've had my highs and my lows and my bits in between where I could do some work, but actually there's nothing really, really, you know, wetting my, my appetite. Um, and I decided to, it was actually after a trip to the Tate Gallery and I picked up a really lovely book in the bookshop called The Creative Licence by Danny Gregory and it was all hand-drawn and hand-written. Um, and this man had worked in advertising, been very successful, but he said, you know, I, I feel like I've sold my soul and I just want to get back to making art. And it was a very unpretentious call to anybody who, who's got, you know, a burning desire to make art, to, to learn how to draw, not through sort of going to lessons and learning in a very sort of uh, technical way, but just through observing, just through, through drawing every single day, drawing everyday objects, not making judgments. Is this pretty? Is this right? Just just do it. Just keep doing it. Like classical music, like doing scales. So I, I spent about a year and I just, oh my God, I just fell in love with drawing again. And whereas as a teenager, um, I, I was into drawing pretty ladies in, in costumes. In fact, theatre design was my, that was my A-level art subject. Um, I found myself drawing coffee cups and sitting, doing the school run and drawing the dashboard of the car, you know, very kind of, if you like, boy-style subjects. And it didn't matter because all I knew was my pen was moving and I was putting something on a page. And the antidote to the, the resting actress who goes in for an audition, prepares all the work and maybe doesn't get a part and, and feels very dejected is that withdrawing, I suppose it's like cooking that you will, you'll make something, you, you produce something and it's tangible and who cares whether it's good or bad, but you've got something to show for yourself. Mm. So, um, you know, without going into the ins and outs, but what the, the turning point for me was that I did a musical called Spamalot and Phil Jupiters, who was in that show with me, is a mad, passionate comics fan. And there are people like him who will go every month to a comic shop. And, and there are comics that come out every month, you know, from Marvel and DC. And also, what I didn't realise was that there was a, a fast-growing, what they call indie comic scene, where people do comics on any subject they like. And also, the wonderful thing that I found out when I started, because it was Phil who looked at my work, he said, well, why don't you, why, why don't you make a comic? <laughs> As he said, you know, I mean, you could do a graphic novel. And my God, that was like, 
I, I don't know how I had the notion that I could even do this, but it's almost like, I remember when I was, I was a child and thinking to myself, I want to sing and I think I can. And it was like, when he said this to me, he said, I, I thought to myself, I know I've just done some drawings, but I think I could. I think I could combine storytelling and drawing. And I'm a long way off, but I really want to do this. And it's, I have to say, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but I, I absolutely love it. I love the learning that I've, you know, that you, doing something and then having some evolution in it. You know, I, I made my first comic in 2013, um, but that was after probably a year and a half of self-taught going on to uh, tutorials like YouTube tutorials, buying books on Amazon on all different comics and how you make them, learning how to use Photoshop and Illustrator, you know, sort of technical applications. And I've, I've never been, um, you know, somebody that loves gadgets, but I can use, I can do stuff on a computer and I can combine that, you know, in order to get my stuff which is done on paper and with ink, I can actually kind of make it ready for the bigger world of publishing. So I'm, I'm very proud of those achievements and, and there are lots of lovely people that I've met on that side of things, writers and illustrators and there's a, a movement called Ladies Do Comics which is run by Nicola Streeton and, and Sarah Lightman um, and they have been fantastic sort of um, advocates for women telling their stories in the comic form because it's been quite a male-dominated industry for a long time as well. So when we meet again, we're going to go through all these wonderful books that with a sort of, a lot of them with a sort of 30s vibe to them yes. and so forth. Absolutely beautiful. I'm looking at this one with a picture of a picture palace on the front. It's called Elsie Harris Picture Palace. I'm not going to say anything more about it now, apart from the fact that you've told me it's about a nippy who then goes on to have some sort of career involved in picture palaces, yes. and that should every anybody who's listening want to hear more about that. So, meanwhile, I thank you so much for talking to oh, me today. My pleasure, Judy. Absolute pleasure. And I can't wait to see Shirley Mander. Great. <laughs>